what's up everybody welcome back to another sermon review uh i am michael from the honest youth pastor today we will be looking at a sermon from someone named jeff durbin you may have heard of jeff durbin uh probably more associated with uh, apologia studios and apologia church and end abortion now if you've heard of him uh, possibly also heard of him from some debates that he does uh, honestly this is probably the maybe the second sermon i've heard of jeff durbin i've seen a lot of debates um, I've seen a lot of debates that he's done. I've seen uh, quite a few um, videos where he's uh, went and street evangelized to uh, Mormons at the Mormon Temple. Uh, so as far as sermons, I haven't heard a ton, but I know that in general, as far as uh, debates, I've seen a lot of those. Um, so today we're going to be covering the sermon called The Smell of Death and Passover from Apologia Church. This was streamed live on April 25th. Uh, and as always, if you want to check out the full sermon without my commentary, link will be in the description below. Also, if this happens to be your first time uh, watching one of these sermon reviews, the whole reason we do these sermon reviews is to look at the sermons and say, okay, what what's good? What's bad? What can we learn from this? Um, by looking at uh, the structure of the sermon, do they talk about the language in the text, the context in the text? Um, do they exegete the scriptures and really dig out what that looks like and then apply it? Um, so that's what we're going to be looking at today. We have two basic um, uh, premises of when we look at these sermons to see, you know, are they good? Are they bad? Are there red flags? Are there things we can learn from? Basically, it's um, do they do they read the text and exegete the text and bring out the truth of the text to apply? Uh, and do they preach the gospel as far as uh, the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and what that looks like uh, for people? So today we're going to be looking at this sermon. Um, it's pretty long. The sermon itself, um, as you can see, is, is an hour and six minutes. I do not think we'll probably get through this whole uh, this whole sermon in the sermon review. And that's why I would encourage you to look uh, at the description and find that link and go watch it yourself. I, I like to try to keep these honestly at around an hour an hour and 15 minutes um <laughs> i don't i don't know if anybody actually gets all the way through these so uh, i, I want to cover the high points um kind of look at the overall structure of the sermon that's the that's the point of these uh these sermon reviews so let's get into it and then we'll kind of stop and go along the way and see you know what's good what's bad uh, about this sermon and the overall um my overall opinion so let's go if you would open your Bibles to Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 26. Gospel. All right, real quick, I am going to turn this up a little bit um, so that we can hear it because it's pretty light. Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 26. We're in our Kingdom of God series. It's a verse by verse exposition of the Gospel according to Matthew. Now, for some of you, um, you may not have ever been to a church or heard of an, a verse-by-verse -verse exposition. And I don't want to belabor it, but the idea is that each Sunday they are working through a specific uh, book. Matthew is what apparently Apology of Church is working through verse-by-verse. -verse. They're on Matthew 26. And so they're working through it verse-by-verse, area-by-area, expositionally walking through the Scripture. So this is not what you would typically, you're not going to show up at Apology of Church. I've, I mean, I don't know, but I'm getting the feeling right away that you're not going to show up and there's not going to be some sort of um, you know, topical sermon or series that they're doing. Um, they're going to say, hey, we're going through the book of Matthew. This morning we're in this passage. We're going to work through these verses. The idea is to, I mean, it is built in exegetical work. Like you, when you show up, you know what you're doing. 
uh, you knew what they were going to cover the week before. So if you wanted to read it, if you wanted to research it, if you wanted to look at Bible study yourself, so you're more prepared when you show up, um, that's kind of encouraged in this sort of exposition of scripture. Everybody knows where we're at. Everybody knows where we're going. And then if you want to do that extra work on your, in your own to look that up, to be more prepared for Sunday, all the more power to you. The idea is it's more of this corporate corporate thing of we're all in the text we're involved we're all doing verse by verse i personally love this method because um the whole body knows where you're at and what you're looking at and it really builds in this hey this is what the text is set up to this point and it just keeps you on track a as you work as you work through the text so anyway we've just finished we just finished an important section of the sayings of jesus here the words of Jesus, and so we're in 26, verse 1. Hear now the word of the living and the true God. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Thus far as the reading of God's holy and inspired word, let's pray together. Father, we come before your word, which we know is a gift. We confess our dependence upon the spirit of God to guide and to teach and to apply your word to our hearts and our minds to bring us to a place of transformation, to have our minds renewed. We ask God that you'd speak today by your spirit, through your word, through the proclamation of your word, that you would get the teacher out of the way, that your people would forget me and remember what they've learned from you here. We pray, God, you'd bless us and use this to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. It's amazing. I love this section of scripture. I think in reading this and unpacking it and understanding it, you'll find that I think most of us have sort of just kind of just passed right through this section without a whole lot of meaning to it. I mean, what's, what's you know, what's, what's to be unpacked for an hour or how long are we going to go to two? No, just joking, okay. What's, how are you going to unpack this section of scripture where this woman, we're going to find out who in a minute here, does this thing with Jesus that's making the disciples angry and of course Judas has his reasons that's all in the text you know how are you gonna unpack this into any real significant meaning and why is Jesus making it a point that this goes in Scripture I mean John says at the end of his gospel that there's so many things that Jesus did 
I mean, we only have a limited amount of information of Jesus' ministry, what he said, what was accomplished. This is the inspired revelation of God. This is what God wanted us to know. But there's so much that happened in the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus that in John, John makes the claim like the, the whole world couldn't contain all the books of all the things that Jesus said and did. But this is what God gave us. And so we have sort of a limited space here. I mean, if the New Testament itself is not that big a section of Scripture, I mean, it's amazing. Every single word is pure, and it's the Word of God. But God chose, the Lord Jesus chose, to have this story as something that's a memorial for her, what she did, wherever in the world the gospel goes, this is going to be proclaimed. So real quick, because there's not a real good stopping point here to kind of interject. There's a couple things that... Uh, you, you may have noted. Uh, and these are the things that honestly, when you're, if me and you were to walk into Apologia Church and sit down, we pretty much know just, you know, just a few minutes in here. We're not even, what, five minutes in. We kind of, we have a general understanding of how Apologia Church views scripture. So this is, you know, he said, this is God's word. This is his inspired word. This is his holy word. Uh, we have this idea that Apologia Church doesn't think that the Bible is just, um, uh, the collections of the sayings of Jesus that you that you know are helpful, um, but we actually see that Apologia Church holds the Bible up very highly. They say this is the inspired Word of God. This is what God has revealed to us is true, and we can trust it. And that that's important because oftentimes I think that that's not said, and sometimes it's just assumed. There's a lot of uh, sermon reviews we've done, or just sermons that I've listened to, that I think the assumption is that. Uh, the pastor that's preaching um, thinks that the Word of God is inspired and that it can be trusted. But maybe like later on down the road, we find out that that pastor didn't actually believe that. And it's, it wasn't outright stated, it was just assumed, right? So I think it's very helpful what Jeff is doing here, that he's stating from the beginning, in case there's somebody, I mean, he knows that, for example, people are going to be watching online, maybe there's somebody in there that doesn't know a whole lot, they're just visiting Apologia, they don't know a whole lot about Apologia. That to kind of set that tone from the beginning, as well as with his introduction, um, start addressing some of the questions that may come up from reading this passage. Because the idea, like he said, there's lots of times I think that uh, there's lots of passages like this um, that we'll just read over because we assume we know what's happening, right? We've, we've read it so many times, we've heard it so many times, we've heard sermons on the passage so many times, that we just assume that we know. So... Um, it's helpful, especially from a pastoral standpoint, that as you address it, you kind of, you bring up those questions that are probably in the minds of the people. Uh, if they're going, some of the people may be sitting there going, if I'm going to dedicate an hour of my life to this, I've already heard this before. What could you possibly bring out of this? Um, you know, he's addressing those questions uh, and bringing them up as well as at the same time, pairing that together with, hey, this is the inspired word of God. If this is here, this is here for a reason. Uh, and just kind of building that up for us at the same time. So this is what I think a, a good a good speaker does. Um, not only do they address the questions that they assume you're probably going to ask, which as a speaker and a pastor you should kind of a, you should at least kind of try to figure out what the opposition or what the questions are going to be to what you're saying, and then brings it in with, well, we can at least trust the word of God because we know it's the word of God. So let's look at this, address those questions with the word of God that's trustworthy and see what we get. And then that's kind of the intro to propel us in to this further. <clears throat> Sorry, but so even if you weren't asking those questions, um, you're at least interested now of where is this going to go. 
about her. It's going to be in memory of her. So why is it so important? Because like I said, be honest, most of us sort of just breeze right through this section. Why is this so significant that she does this? But I truly think it's powerful and it's glorious. And so pray for me, even as I'm preaching, that I'll be able to illustrate some of these very, very important things. So the first thing is getting to this section of Scripture, we have to remember where we've been just briefly. You remember the Lord Jesus said that he was going to Jerusalem and he was going to be killed. And when he enters Jerusalem, we know the scene, right? We have the Hosanna, the Hosanna. We've got these leaves coming down before Jesus. And Jesus goes in for the second cleansing of the temple. Jesus then gives the indictments upon the leadership of Jerusalem. He declares the seven woes upon the leadership of Jerusalem. And we just got out of this massive section, this discourse, the Olivet Discourse, where the Lord Jesus promises that in that generation, their house is left to them desolate. There is going to be wars, famine, pestilence. You're going to have all of these judgments upon the covenant breakers before they all die. The great tribulation was going to occur in their lifetime. All of that's behind us. And then Matthew says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples. And so Matthew does this, actually. A lot of people make arguments that he's really following uh, the Old Testament and what happened with Moses and Yahweh, where you'd have sort of like a sermon account from Yahweh and then historical narrative. And a lot of people make a point that perhaps Matthew is actually following that, consciously following that. It is interesting because if you go back, just quickly, just turn to Matthew, same book, Matthew chapter 7, you see a similar thing that Matthew does. It's a device of how he's actually developing this narrative and this story, this gospel, according to Matthew. In Matthew 7, verse 28, this is after the most famous sermon in the history of the world, which is what? The Sermon on the Mount. It's the most famous sermon in the history of the world, truly is. And after you have that, those sayings, those words, Matthew says in Matthew 7, 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So you'll see that Matthew sort of has that pattern. You have a sermon, you have some important words from Jesus, an important saying section, and then on to the historical narrative. So just an interesting point in terms of how Matthew is laying out this gospel and this story. He is trying to emphasize, apparently, the importance of this section of Jesus' teaching. Now, he's got limited space in this day to write, and of course, this is inspired revelation. This is from God. But these are important things to the story, and so we have this important sermon, these important sayings, this important section, and then on to the historical narrative. Well, that's just what happened here. We're in 26 now. He had just finished this epic section of his teaching and his sayings and the promise of coming judgment, looming judgment on that generation, and then he says... You know, verse 2, that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be crucified, will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, he So real quick, I just before he moves on, I want you to see what he did there. So the introduction came. He presented the questions he assumed was going to be asked, backed it up with we can trust the trustworthy word of God to answer these questions. And there's actually things in this text we can dig out, even though we, we often read over this. And then he does what I think oftentimes does not happen and really needs to happen. 
goes back and gives a contextual timeline of what has led up to this event. That way we kind of know that when, when we're reading Matthew 26, we're not reading it in some sort of bubble of, you know, oh, we're just plopping down in the middle here now. Um, we're actually understanding that this is in a timeline that's occurred. There are important things that have happened before this that affect this, uh, this passage that we're reading that will not only affect this passage that we're reading, but affects what happens after it, affects what's happening during it. Um, this is this is context. Not only is it context within the verses we read, but it gives a context of the things that have led up to this that are vitally important um, to, to kind of where how, how we've ended up here. He mentions again, I don't know if you caught it, he mentions again about the inspired word of God. Again, pointing back and anchoring that this is trustworthy and true, um, which again, I think, I don't know how, I don't want you to overdo it, but I think pastors need to really make that point a lot to where we say, look, there's a lot of different churches out there. There's a lot of different pastors. I want you to know what you're getting. By the way, this is the inspired word of God. And that's just a little kind of hook in there for people to audibly hear and know where you're coming from. Um, he does do something else, which I think was neat. I don't, I, I don't know if I've ever done this. Or I don't know if I've ever heard it anywhere else. Maybe I have, and I just don't recall. But um, he also, as he's giving the contextual timeline leading up to the passage that we're reading in 26, he also gives this very helpful sort of, hey, this is how Matthew is laying out his gospel as far as uh, he, he's got some patterns here that he puts into it. Uh, for the readers that are reading, so they kind of understand, you know, the, the patterns of here's here's uh, teaching, and then here's historical narrative. Here's teaching, this is historical narrative, which is helpful for us as you know, especially for them as they're going through the book of Matthew to understand that because they're going to be seeing that time and time again as they work through it. So that that's helpful to understand that as well. Um, but that being said, understanding the timeline leading up to what we're looking at is is incredibly important. Uh, here's what's important. This isn't the first time Jesus said this, right? And Jesus says to them, he says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. You know. Well, of course they would know that after two days the Passover is coming. If they were faithful Jewish people, they knew this was like one of the most important events of the entire year. The Passover feast was something that God commanded them to remember. He wanted them to rehearse what Christ was going to accomplish. And so this was something that was everything to them. We have our own particular traditions today, 21st century Christians in America. We've got our own traditions that are our exciting moments for us, right? So what would you say are the exciting moments for us? They're like, that's what we have to have happen. We're going to do it this way. And we have the same rituals even, the same food. We do it in a certain order. We may not see like a religious significance to Thanksgiving, but it's still something you can't miss. What would you do if you missed Thanksgiving? You'd be sort of like, oh, that stunk. I was really looking forward. All of November is really, in my house, about Thanksgiving, right? It's a big day for us to gather as family. And for them, they know, of course, that after two days, there's going to be the Passover. It actually wasn't just one day. It was a feast. And then, of course, you had that memorial of what took place at the Passover. So, yes, they're good Jews, disciples of Jesus. They've been to synagogue. This is their tradition. They know that after two days is the Passover. You can't forget it, everyone knows. That's what's gonna happen, it's a big deal to them. The amazing thing is that Jesus says to them, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now mark this down, because here it is. I told you there's important aspects or elements to this when he says, I want this done in memory of her. They don't know. 
right? I mean, they know, but they don't know. They're, they know, but they don't know. They, they're not putting the story together yet. Jesus keeps telling them that he's going to Jerusalem, they're gonna crucify him, three days later he'll rise again, but they're just confused, they don't quite understand. And I, I, I did try to suggest a couple of weeks ago, you know, let's not be too hard on them. I mean, they're hearing it from Jesus, but Jesus does say some very deep spiritual things at times. Like, what, what maybe they were thinking, well, maybe he's being allegorical, symbolic. Like, what does this actually mean? He's going to die. Because from their perspective, don't forget this. This is critical to get and hold the story together. Jesus comes out of the wilderness proclaiming what? The good news of the kingdom. They knew that this is Mashiach, that he was the one that was supposed to rule the world, that all God's enemies were going under his feet, that all the nations were going to stream up to God's mountain, that he was going to be on the throne of David to establish justice in the earth. The zeal of the Lord of hosts would accomplish this. So they see Jesus, this person that doesn't look really stunning from the world's perspective. He's not on a golden throne in their day. All they know is this is the promised Messiah. This is the king. He's bringing this kingdom. And so when Jesus is saying, I'm going to die, these disciples are a bit confused. So Jesus says, you know, but in a sense they... They don't really know. And this is important. Again, mark it down. The chosen 12 disciples, these men, these disciples, they were told by Jesus the story as it was to be played out, and they still didn't understand it. They couldn't grasp it. They didn't finally yield to it at this moment yet. They're very confused. All right. So uh, one thing I want to point out before we move on too far, even though we're pretty far away from it even now, um, I want you to note just really quick, we talk about how storytelling is a good thing if it, um, if it really builds out the text and helps us understand the text better. And I think he did a great job of that when we, if you caught the reference where he talks about Thanksgiving and how, you know, what if you miss Thanksgiving and there's certain things about that holiday, the same food, the same ritual, the same getting together with family and how you, you know what that means when somebody thinks Thanksgiving, that you have a certain idea of what that looks like, what that smells like, who's going to be there. And he ties that in to help us understand what the disciples would have understand about Passover in, in a similar manner as far as uh, the same foods, the same people getting together, what was going to happen, the same ritual. Obviously, the two aren't uh, Thanksgiving and Passover aren't <laughs> connected in any way. And he makes that point. But he, he brings up the fact that, hey, so that you because you don't celebrate Passover so that you understand kind of what is happening here. He references Thanksgiving. So I just wanted you to point that out because I think that was, it was, it was done so well that you, that it's kind of like, oh, okay. Like it's not this big elaborate thing where he tells the story about Thanksgiving with his family one time and tells this huge, hilarious thing and then tries to connect it back. He just says, hey, so that you have a reference, it'd be kind of like Thanksgiving for us. So there's this idea that this connection so that we now can go, oh, okay. This is kind of what they would be expecting. This is kind of the idea in, in a much less way, but so we can connect to it a bit and understand it. And I think, I think that's vitally important uh, to, to catch because it was a real quick example to help us connect to the text, but it didn't so weigh us down there that we were able to move on without even thinking about it. Uh, and then he goes into, and it really elaborates on this point, which is going to build into what he's going to say here in a minute. But he's really trying to press home that Jesus says that they, they know and they understand, 
when it's quite clear they don't know and they don't understand, but this he's pressing hard on this for a reason. And I think this is, again, as a pastor, we can learn a little bit from this because we can say, you know, there's, we're going to press in on a point a little bit. Sometimes it does help to really exaggerate it out, really stay on it for a second to push home uh, what we're trying to bring out here, which is that Jesus tells them something, but they don't really understand what he's saying and then just push in on that a bit because it's going to be a prom a prominent part here in a minute uh, as he moves on in the sermon but that's going to help uh, us as congregants really kind of be entrenched in this idea because you're the pastor is really pressing in on this idea a bit so that we understand the importance of what what's being said that's very important he did tell them just move back to 20 really briefly so you can see this this is in matthew chapter 20 in verses 17 through 19, Matthew 20, 17 through 19. So he does this a couple times. Not going to stop this, but just as a real quick reference, um, continually going back to the things Jesus has previously said in the same book. We're also going to see where he, he crosses across the Gospels to connect them, which is also important. But this is a good tactic as well as you're preaching to show that, hey, back here, Jesus did the same thing. Back here, the same thing was said. Uh, and just alluding and showing that this isn't an isolated event. This is a continuation of the story. 19, this is before Jesus goes to Jerusalem. In verse 17, he says, it says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So, that doesn't seem ambiguous to me. That's pretty detailed. He's saying, like, these are the perpetrators. Here's where it's going to come from. Here's how many days it's going to take. This is how they're going to kill me. We're going to Jerusalem, and this is going to happen. And they still don't get it. They don't fully grasp it or understand it. So they know, but they don't really know. This is, of course, during Passover. Now, what's interesting about Passover is Passover was about death. Just consider that. We see Passover in a new light now because we have this revelation from God that explains the glory of that story. What God was doing in history. Okay, so I want to stop it beforehand instead of after like we've done uh, up to this point. So we have to understand, and I think Jeff does understand pretty well, that there's going to be people that hear this or are at Apollo, more importantly, that are Apologia right then when he's preaching this, that don't understand certain phrases uh, or historical context is for, uh, for what he's saying. So this is why he referenced a bit when he's talking about uh, Thanksgiving. It kind of makes that connection a bit for them um, to have a tie-in. Now he's going to go into a much longer kind of explanation of what that looks like, why that's important, what they would have drawn from that in their context. Because oftentimes, especially over time, we, we lose the connection to it uh, because of cross cultures and languages. There's sometimes where we even lose the original meaning where, where it means something to us when somebody says something a certain way. But when it would have been said, you know, previous generations, it means something entirely different. Um, we have reference like that just in American culture and the language didn't change. It was just time change. So you can see how that would be exponentially harder throughout cultures and throughout time. So what he's going to do here is now go into, and I want you, the reason I'm talking about this now is I want you to listen through it so I don't have to stop it, but listen to kind of how he says, okay, this is, this is Passover. We see it differently. This is what it would have meant to them. And then he unpacks that in a way that 
um, helps us not only understand it, but get the deeper meaning in it, right? So we can't as pastors assume that the congregation totally understands 100%. Of course, they get what Passover is. Um, so it's helpful even for the people that have been in the pews for a long time um, to, to, to maybe get a refresher course in this. And this is why I think what he's about to do is incredibly helpful because some people may not have heard this before. Some people may be visiting. Some people might think they know what Passover was and be wrong. So um, I think this is important, what he's about to do, to really unpack this to help us see in 26 what's happening. Was God sovereignly wielding history in such a way as to portray the story of Jesus before Jesus even walks on the earth among us in the incarnation? But the Passover is really about death. Think about it. The Passover is about death. We've got the ten plagues. We have the death of the firstborn. But you also have a mandatory death of the Passover lamb. And God gives them specific things they're supposed to do with this lamb and how they're supposed to avoid the wrath of God upon their house. Passover is about death. Something has to die. Something has to die. God's judgment, his wrath is coming, and something has to die to actually move the wrath of God away from me and my house. They understood that Passover was about death. It really was all about death. This moment that they're walking into as Jews, they are rehearsing something that has everything to do with the wrath of God and death. But what's interesting here is that this is entirely the plan of God. I want you to consider this for a moment. We talk a lot about the sovereignty of God at Apologia Church because we believe the Bible. We believe that it says God declares the end from the beginning, that God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay his hand and say, what have you done? Scripture teaches that God predestines, that God's in full control over all things. We believe that. And here's a moment that displays it in beauty and glory. It is majestic. Jesus has told them, Clearly, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. That's in John 10, 18. In John 19, 10 through 11, Pilate tells Jesus in the trial, this is now this person who's a Roman ruler, he's got the power to execute Jesus, and he says to Jesus, don't you know, I've got the authority to let you go or to crucify you. And Jesus says to Pilate in his face, he says, you don't have any authority except that which is given to you by God. Like Jesus is coming to lay his life down willing. It was on his time. Think about how many times in the Gospels you see these moments where, say, for example, John chapter 8 or John chapter 10, where Jesus claims that he is Yahweh, ego eimi, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is saying he's Yahweh. They pick up stones to kill him. How come he gets away? Or times where the crowds are so incited by the teaching of Jesus or something that he says, and they want to kill Jesus, and Jesus just slips out of the crowd. But at this moment, Matthew 20, Jesus says, now I'm going. And it's on his time and his plan. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And even on the cross, Jesus knows he can bring all these angels to his defense, but he has come for this purpose because he is the Passover lamb. He is what it was pointing to. And it was exactly at this moment, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He indicts the religious leadership. He indicts them. He says, judgment is coming. Get ready for it. Before you all die, this is all getting wiped away, essentially, is what Jesus is teaching. And now it's time 
for Passover. And he is the true Passover lamb now walking in their midst. It's on his timetable. What they were always rehearsing was actually going to take place. The show was really going to begin with Jesus. It's in his time. Jesus is fully in control. I want you just to see this so you can understand God's control over this entire moment. It's something that we actually point to often here at Apologia Church, but it's in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, it gives an explanation, an inspired explanation for what we're going to see take place in the narrative in just a moment. Watch this. In Acts chapter 4, verse 27, here's what it says. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hands and your plan had predestined to take place. So we have an explanation there in Scripture of how this whole thing played out. The scribes, the Pharisees, the chief rulers, Caiaphas' involvement, the entire story is actually playing out according to their own desires. They're jealous of Jesus. They're fearful of Jesus. He's going to take away their place and their leadership. They've got to take this guy out. The raising of Lazarus had just taken place shortly before this. They thought Jesus now is going to be believed by everybody and take away their place of rule. And so they have their own motivations and desires to murder Jesus, to kill him, to murder him. Even if it's done by the government, it's still murder. And they're responsible for it. But in Scripture, what do we see? This was according to God's predestined plan. All right, so I mistook where I was in this sermon. But what you just saw was very important as well. Now, not everybody is going to be able to do what Jeff just did. Uh, I think it takes a lot of time um, just being in it to do it. So Jeff, not only is he a pastor at Apologia Church, uh, I mentioned before before we started the sermon review, what I've primarily seen him do is debates uh, on, um, well, on a variety of different things, but he's a debater. He knows the, 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 uh, the, the what do you call it? He, he knows how to debate. Anyway, so what he's basically just set up, what we just watched that kind of that long clip there, was him going through building a case for in through scripture what uh, about God you know ha being in control setting this all up being in control of it no one takes Jesus's life but Jesus gives it up uh, on his own accord and that whole setting that whole case up for what we see at uh, the crucifixion isn't you know somebody just taking and killing Jesus this is predestined plan that Jesus uh, specifically knows at that moment when he's going to say, okay, now we're doing this. I'm not going to get killed before this. Now we're doing this. And he sets up this long thing um, to kind of demonstrate that. Now, again, that's going to take practice. That's going to take time. But it's a good thing to kind of implement into the sermon because you have to understand, I think, and I think this is why um, Durbin, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but if you have heard of him, he's kind of a controversial figure in regards to just how strongly opinionated he is on subjects. Um, but I think that's good for pastors to sort of uh, learn from that in the sense that we have to understand, especially pastors, if we're going to be presenting a sermon, that what we're actually doing is not only are we presenting you know, a sermon to, uh, to, to feed the congregation, to, to help them understand the scripture better, to help them uh, apply what we see in scripture to their life so they can go out into the world and, and live and speak about Jesus, but we're also going 
to be presenting something that people are going, if they're, if they're not believers, that they're going to push up against and they're going to try to tear apart and they're going to try to poke holes in. So Durbin, I think just by uh, the fact that he is a debater as well as a pastor automatically brings this into the sermon where he, he, he lays out his case, presents it, and then puts it uh, in the sermon so that as he's preaching through it, when he's talking about that this was, you know, this was all in the purpose and plan of God, um, that that's kind of built in. I don't think a lot of pastors, I, I know I don't think about this a lot of times when I'm presenting my sermon, I'm usually thinking about, you know, okay, I'm presenting this to the congregation. And as I've said in previous uh, sermon review videos, I think that the church is for uh, the enrichment and education of believers in the text and in scripture so that we can, we can read the text, we can be encouraged by scripture, we can praise God because of what we see in scripture, and then we can say, you know, we can apply this to our lives as believers now to go out into a lost world to talk about Jesus. But Durbin knows that there's going to be people in Apology to Church or see this later that are going to push back and buck against the idea of uh, specifically the point that he's pointing out here is that this is all part of God's predestined plan. So he lays out his case here in order to kind of uh, preemptively answer those questions when they do come. And I think that's something that um, as a congregant, as we're sitting out here, we just see a case developed uh, through Scripture that, you know, I think he did a really good job about. But he's doing that and as so that when people hear him and they kind of maybe have a little bit of pushback against the point that he's making, he's already laid out his case. He doesn't have to explain himself anymore. He already explains himself. And I think as pastors, we need to kind of keep that in our mind as we're preparing the sermon of saying, okay, so this is the text we're looking at as he did at the beginning, saying, okay, these are the questions that will probably be asked, and then build into the sermon as well uh, answers to questions that aren't being asked yet, but whenever you know people are listening to the sermon, it may come up as they're listening to it. So we're, I guess all of that to say is that pastors, we should, we should you know, be prepared to ask the questions that haven't been asked yet, uh, and that's going to take some, it's going to take some effort uh, as we prepare our sermon. Um, to be ready for that and to anticipate that. Um, I, I think that one of the things that a good speaker does is anticipate the questions or the pushback um, that are going to come from what they're about to say and just they preemptively put that in knowing that that's going to happen. Um, and that's what we saw Jeff do here is build his case for that. God chose this moment Nobody had control over Jesus and what was taking place here. He willingly laid his life down, and all of this was taking place on time and as planned. Jesus is the true Passover. So this moment is unique because it demonstrates something. No matter how bad things look in the world, no matter how much deception, no matter how much jealousy, no matter how much pride and destruction and evil and murder, God's the sovereign. He's wielding history according to his purpose and will, and nobody's thwarting him. And nobody shows that to us better than Jesus. Jesus, the God-man, he shows us what the image of God is supposed to be like in this world. God's intention for his image in the world is Jesus Christ. He's the true image of God. He's the sinless, the righteous one. He is the just one. And how does Jesus endure this entire week? He goes with his focus on the cross, knowing the entire story is being fulfilled in him, and he is confident 
He is trusting in the Father, and he is telling them the truth before it takes place. It truly is a glorious thing. I want to do this because I don't want to make assumptions. There's actually a lot of new believers in here. Now, we'll never get tired of this story. It will never get old. We will. One thing I do want to mention, too, uh, that I haven't mentioned to this point, maybe you've picked up. There are going to be, uh, he's mentioned a couple times of where he talked about Jesus saying that, you know, the destruction is going to come before they die. Uh, he's already put the woes on them. Um, this was a subtle reference. And I, again, I just thought about it when he said it again. This is a subtle reference to kind of his eschatology as far as what he believes about the end times, about what he believes about the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, how that all plays out, where that fits in eschatology. Um, there's a short series that I did. You can find it in the playlist, uh, the Babylon pastor podcast. Me and my friend Rob went through the different, uh, views on eschatology and you can, it's a very flyover, but it'll give you a kind of a brief view. And, and Jeff is kind of revealing here his eschatology, eschatological view, uh, on, on the Bible. And then, again, this is, he's not bringing it and just saying here, here, here it is. But as he's speaking, it's this kind of this undertone of, of how he's, you know, he's interpreting it based on what he sees in scripture here. So that, that's important. Again, I don't know. It's so subtle. You may not even pick it up, but he is kind of bringing that to light here. Um, and not that that's incredibly important. It's not a salvation issue, but it's something that we kind of know. So what we do know about Jeff and apology at church, though the church itself might not hold this view, but Jeff apparently does is that he has a certain view on eschatological, uh, the end times. Um, they hold the scripture as the inspired word of God that can be trusted um, and so these are two things that we've, we've just picked up already as we've been listening to this sermon for 20 minutes is that they really put a high view on scripture as far as its, um, its inspiredness, that it can be trustworthy. We also get a little touch here that I wouldn't say the whole church believes it, but Jeff does as far as a certain view of eschatology and what that looks like, because that does play into how you interpret scripture as well. Um, and this is helpful for us as congregants to sit out there to at least know the position that the pastor is coming from when he preaches, because that lens is going to dictate how you interpret certain passages of scripture. Um, so it's important to know that. So now he's going to move into uh, another section of his sermon to keep building his point. We will never tap it completely out. The story of the Passover. We have to talk about it. Jesus says two days, the Passover, you know. Okay, this is where <laughs> I was confused about where we're at. Uh, also, I forgot to mention just a second ago, um, he specifically points out that there are probably new believers in the congregation. And this is also something that's important. This is why he's going to go into this long thing about Passover and this history of Passover. Because, as I said before, when I was confused about where we were in the sermon, um, people may not know what that is. Uh, have no clue the importance of that in biblical history. And so now he's going to go into this and explain it. So that we have a much better idea of why this is such an important thing in chapter 26 that they would have automatically understood and referenced it, but we, we don't. No, but what exactly is the Passover? Why is it so significant in this moment of the narrative for Matthew? Because just, you got to get this. I've demonstrated over 20 years of preaching through Matthew <laughs> that Matthew is not giving you merely explicit references to Jesus as Messiah. In other words, uh, Jesus did this, and this was, it, this was to fulfill the scripture said, and he'll quote, the, he'll quote the Old Testament. There's explicit reference, but there is also clearly depth of layers for Matthew. 
where Matthew will even tell you through the story that Jesus is actually walking through the history of Israel in his own life, that Jesus is what Israel was supposed to be, that Jesus is actually going through that story of Israel, and he is actually succeeding and obeying where Israel fails. All of that is there. There is so much depth to this story. Matthew knows that story, and so Matthew is making sure we see that. Jesus is the Passover. This occurred during Passover. That's a very important part of the story for Jews. The Passover discussion, we need to have it. I want to just say as a highlight, today is not all about the Passover, but just briefly, listen, this is important. The Passover truly, in a line, is about God saving God's people from God's wrath. It's God saving us from God. Let that hang for a second because we don't like that today. We want people to come into church and we hear all the encouraging stories and about how great you are and you want to hear about the romance you, you can have between you and Jesus and all these things. It's all this just personal thing. It's all about you, you, you. Even some of the songs that are sung today in, in big Christian churches, the, the lyrics are mostly about us. Right, we're singing songs like kind of like about us to us. It's weird in a worship service. We're supposed to be singing to God about who God is and what he's like and his glory and his kingdom and all those things. And now we're, it's all about us. But you see, we're not going to understand the glory of this moment in the narrative of Matthew if we don't understand when we're talking about Passover, we're talking about death. And we're talking about the purpose of the Passover being God saving me from God. We're going to embrace that. God is holy, he is righteous, he is just, and we're not. Now, here's something that I want to note before um, he goes into this much further. I think that's important to note that he recognizes that people are going to be adverse to what he just said. Um, and he kind of goes on a, uh, on a kind of a, a quick line of thought of why that probably is as far as how churches do church now, what the songs are about now, how, how we've kind of lost the sense of God saves us from himself, uh, and how that, that's going to not be a happy place for some people. And how some people, I mean, some maybe even if you're watching this video, you're just like, yeah, Jeff's stupid. Like, that's, yeah, it's just bad theology. It's toxic theology. Um and he knows that, but he knows that for a couple reasons. And this is, I think, also important for as pastors for us to, when we're preparing sermons, is to, if you're not interacting with people and uh, having biblical conversations with people and really addressing the issues that uh, are brought up in people's lives, you're not going to know that people are adverse to that. You may, nobody, if you've never, if you've never talked through a biblical conversation with people about sin and repentance and justification and sanctification, what this looks like, like if you've never had those conversations, you're not going to know that whenever you start bringing up the topic or just say what Jeff said, um, that people's faces are going to be like, oh, what? Like they're, they're just, they don't like that. So he, he sits on it for a moment and acknowledges that there are going to be people that are going to hear that, that are going to wince at it, that are not going to like it. And he, then he comes into the, okay, but we're going to have to embrace that a little bit. And he's going to kind of walk through here as he speaks about Passover, referencing also back to this to kind of to demonstrate the truth of that statement. But he knows that and he takes a deliberate moment to acknowledge that 
there are going to be people that don't like that. So I think, one, it's important to, as, as, as we prepare sermons as pastors, that we recognize that there's going to be certain things that we say that people are not going to uh, like, they're not going to connect to real, to real easily, and that we acknowledge that in the sermon. So it's not just us going, oh, people aren't going to like this. It's us acknowledging that in a sermon so that, so that they know that we know. Secondly, if a pastor does say something like that, and me and you were in the congregation, we're hearing this, um, there should be this expectation that he then explains himself and doesn't just be like, no, that's just true. So that's important that after this point that Jeff now, he's made this statement, that he now kind of demonstrates and shows the truth of that statement. Because if he doesn't, now he's just talking, right? What, what's he backing any of this up with? So it is now important as pastors that if we say something like that, we then back that up with scripture and show it. And as congregants, if we hear that, we should expect that you now prove your point then. If you know this is going to be a divisive thing that you just said, demonstrate to me how that's actually true then so that I can see where you're getting it from. So all that being said, let's now see how he kind of follows this up. We're the sinners, we're the violators, we're the ones that rebel, we're the ones that run. And so God, yes, is love beyond what you and I have the capacity to even fully comprehend. We can't comprehend it, we won't on this side of heaven, no way, maybe even not on that side. God is merciful, yes. God is patient, yes. He is forgiving, yes, in ways that are so incomprehensible, but he is also a God of justice and wrath. And the Passover is about death. And the Passover is about this holy God pouring out wrath and God saving his people from God. That's what the Passover story is truly about. That's what the story of Jesus is truly about. I want to just point quickly to this. In the story of the Passover and the plagues, we oftentimes look at that story. We don't understand that God was actually telling a bigger story the entire time. Here's the deal. There are things happening in the Old Testament that to us may seem weird at first glance until you understand it in the light of Jesus. And you understand long before Jesus came, God was giving them the story of Jesus before they even understood it. They didn't even get some of these things. Like when Abraham offers Isaac on the altar, Nobody understood. Not even Abraham could have possibly understood the depth of the glories and the mystery of Christ in that moment. That he's taking his son, his only son, the son of his love, on this long journey, three days away, to go to this specific spot to offer his son, his only son, the son of his love, on this place to sacrifice. And his son, his only son, the son of his love, carries the wood to the place of the sacrifice. But there is no lamb. And so he says, okay, here's the fire and here's the wood, but where's the lamb, Father, for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, through inspiration, God will provide for himself the lamb, my son. And so when Abraham goes to pull out the knife to slay his son, the angel of the Lord shows up and tells him not to do it because you haven't withheld your only son from me. And then they see a ram in the thicket of the bush and they offer the ram there. Well, wait, it's supposed to be a lamb. It was a ram, not a lamb. Why? Because Abraham names that place. This is the place the Lord will provide it. What? The lamb for the sacrifice. And about 2,000 years later comes God's son, his only son, the son of his love, who carries the wood to the place of the sacrifice. It just so happens to be in that very place Abraham said God would provide the sacrifice. Do you see? This is incredible. 
God was giving them these things to rehearse before they understood the entire story. And the Passover is the same way. God is going to demonstrate to his people that he's the true God. He's the only God. He's the living God. All of the gods of the nations are idols. They're false gods. And God's going to demonstrate it in redeeming his people from slavery to bring them into the promised land of that relationship with him. You are. So he's walked through it. There's one thing I do want to note real quick that I haven't verified it. I've never heard said before. I don't know if you caught it. He was referencing Abraham, uh, you know, going to sacrifice his son. God saying he'd provide a lamb. Uh, and, and he says in that very same spot later, he provides Jesus. I don't know if he's saying that the very same place that Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac is the very same place Jesus died on the cross. That seems to be the connection he's making. If that is the connection, I've never heard that before. It was, it was, it's very vague. Um, he doesn't really push home the point. That's kind of how I'm taking it. I've never heard that before though. I don't know if that's, uh, even verifiable. Um, so statements like that are a bit troubling in the sense that I go, I don't like, can we verify that? Or are you just saying that again, this goes back to everything we say, we need to be able to at least kind of reference in scripture. And as far as I know, if I'm wrong, comment in the comment section, but I don't, I've never heard that before. And I don't even know if that's verifiable. If it is great, that'd be awesome. I just, I've never heard that before. So moving on. You already see the marks of the story of Jesus in there. Jesus says, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. But if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. That's the true story. That's the true burden. That's the true slavery all of God's people have. It's slavery to sin. And that's the slavery God intends to free us from forever, permanently. And that's where the story is anchored, there, back there. And so God is calling his people out of Egypt, and he has Moses, and he says, Moses, you go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And we know the story. The story goes, he goes, and Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he says no, and we have the plagues. And we read those stories, and we say, you know, that seems kind of cold-blooded. Doesn't it seem weird? It seems like this fanciful and crazy story. You know, atheists love to look at stories like that and say, that's... Ah, you know, it's hogwash, it's crazy, you know, flies, and you got all these blood water, and you got all these crazy things. Yeah, right. Well, if you know history and you understand the story and what God is doing there, it's actually pretty spectacular. Let me read this to you from an article. Uh, I think it's a good summary in terms of thinking about the ten plagues. The first plague, turning the Nile to blood, was a judgment against Apis, the god of the Nile, Isis, the goddess of the Nile, and the guardian of the Nile. The Nile was also believed to be the bloodstream of Osiris, who was reborn each year when the river flooded. The river, which formed the basis of daily life and natural, national economy, was devastated as millions of fish died in the river and the water was unusual, unusable. Pharaoh was told, by this you will know that I am the Lord, Exodus 7, 17. So the first plague enters and what is it? It's a showdown of gods. You got the true God, Yahweh, the only God, the first and last. Besides him, there is no God. And the false gods of Egypt and Pharaoh, this man that thinks he has all the power in the world and control over everything, God has a showdown with him. I'll show you your gods are false. Because here's your gods. They have power over the Nile. Let's see if you can cry out to your God and stop what I'm doing. So this is, this is interesting as well. So I think as pastors, we should really dive into kind of the undertones and what, 
what they would have known at the time that we kind of lose over over centuries of being separated from this is that there is this real undertone of what's happening here in the plagues that if uh, just a plain reading we would miss without knowing again historical context i think um a reference for this that i that i found very helpful is uh dr mike hessner i think is how you pronounce his last name that he 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 does this with a lot of the Old Testament, showing the cultural context, how it plays in, what they would have understood this as, what this would have meant to them. And it really is helpful to see that so that you can you can connect it to your reading of Scripture to say, oh, OK, that makes a lot more sense now that that actually clears up the, the cloudiness of this situation, because now we understand the context of the situation, what's what's occurring. So when Jeff here is going through and explaining the Passover and explaining that the Passover is really death, they would have understood it as this death and this this wrath, then going into uh, showing that, you know, this is how uh, the original readers of the Exodus would have understood this of God. Uh, going up against these Egyptian gods and showing that these Egyptian gods are not real gods, that he has control over everything, which then I, I hope you're making that connection is playing in to Jeff's point from earlier that, that no one controls God, that God is going, his plan is going to be done regardless of what happens. Uh, and that he, he's the sovereign over all things. And this plays into that point again, as he's explaining Passover here and showing them and walking them through this, um, to, to kind of better draw this out so that as a congregation, if we don't know this and we don't have any connection to Passover, we've never been taught about it before. As we're reading it here in Matthew 26, then we have a better understanding of how they would have seen it and understood it. You see, that's the point. We have these 10 plagues and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Why? It's on God's timing. God hardens his heart. Why? To show his power to show his glory. Another example, the second plague, bringing frogs from the Nile, was a judgment against Heket, the frog-headed goddess of birth. Frogs were thought to be sacred and not to be killed. God had the frogs invade every part of the homes of the Egyptians. And when the frogs died, their stinking bodies were heaped up in offensive piles all throughout the land, Exodus 8, 13 through 14. So here is God demonstrating his power, his glory in the redemption of his people from their slavery in Egypt. He first has a purposeful showdown with Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods. Why? Because the Egyptians are begging their gods, can you please just get these frogs out? You know, um, in Kauai, um, Kauai has a lot of things about it that are amazing and beautiful, of course and a lot of things about it that are not so great. It's a very difficult place to live. It's a hard place to, pr to bring the gospel. It's, it's got you know, interesting elements that make it difficult to be there. Um, but one of the things that totally grosses me out about Kauai is the frogs, the frogs. Sometimes, I'm mean, gonna tell you, I have like, like horrific like, like scenes in my mind of like walking out the door and ginormous like cat-sized frogs like jumping out across past, right? They're huge, they're ginormous frogs, I hate them. Can you imagine these disgusting little creatures running all around, making fools of themselves in Egypt, right? All around, everywhere, and they can't get them out. It's gross, they're really quite gross creatures. I don't know if they're a result of the fall, I think so, 
I'm confident they are. But here's the point. The Egyptian gods are supposed to be able to tell those frogs to leave, and they couldn't. Why? Because Yahweh is the only true God. And as God is playing out this moment in history, that's real history, it really happens, he's demonstrating he's the true God, and he is the one to be worshipped and honored and glorified, and he has power over the false gods of Egypt. Now, on and on the plagues go, and each plague is power over a particular Egyptian god. And then, of course, God has the final. The final is he's going to take the firstborn. The firstborn. Here it is. The tenth and last plague. The death of the firstborn males was a judgment on Isis, the protector of children. In this plague, God was teaching the Israelites a deep spiritual lesson that pointed to Christ. Unlike the other plagues which the Israelites survived by virtue of their identity as God's people, this plague required an act of faith by them. And so what's interesting is you go to the story, I want you to see it with your own eyes and know where it's at. Exodus chapter 12. To understand this moment that the Lord Jesus is in with his disciples, the meaning of Passover, Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you, the beginning of months, it shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's house, a lamb for their household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. The lamb, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hands. You shall eat it on in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is God saving them from God. Okay, so two things just happened. One, uh, he's demonstrating his point from earlier. So what I said was when you make that statement, you need to be able to show that statement later and show it in Scripture and prove it. Um, so that's what he's doing here. Secondly, I wanted you to sit there and feel how long that felt. Because uh, I think oftentimes, and I am totally guilty of this, sometimes as pastors, because we want to get through the sermon, we'll say, it says this here, but we're not going to read it. Read it on your own time. Jeff deliberately goes to Exodus chapter 12, reads this whole section of scripture. It does feel long. Like it feels like we're like, oh, you could have just summarized it. Right. But what he's doing and what we've talked about in sermon reviews before is that he's anchoring them to that. 
So it's not just, well, Jeff gave this summary, so it must be right. It's, okay, let's go here. I want to show you what Scripture says here in this regard. Uh, and I want you to feel it. I want you to read that. I want you to see that it's there. Um, now, again, depending on uh, your sermon, you need to be respectful of people's time. On that note, we're going to finish up this sermon review in about 15 minutes because I don't want to make these too long. Um, but the idea here is that you, you want to make sure that um, you include the things that need to be included to show and to demonstrate your point. So like I said before, he needed to prove his point. He, he brings up this scripture to demonstrate that, to show that. But he does it and connects it and anchors it to scripture in a place where he can say, there it is. We can read it. We just did read it. You can see what, what was said. Um, so now his point's been, you know, he, he, he gives scriptural evidence for it while also tying it to scripture, not just saying, well, it's over here. So that now that we've read it, we've seen it, he's tying up this point as far as the plagues and the last one. And then he's going to go into kind of wrapping this up a bit um, so that we can now move on to the rest of what he's going to say in this sermon. God saving them from God in the Passover. Now, we don't have time to unpack all this, but just think about the beauty of this. God has them rehearse in a visual, in something that they acted out, something with the Passover lamb, with the blood over their house, and the judgment of God passing over their house on account of the blood of the lamb over their house, and they, were, they escaped that judgment of God. But they were supposed to eat this lamb. They were supposed to actually participate, take it into their bodies. There was intimacy connected between them and the Passover lamb from the very beginning. It's a powerful story. One more point, just so you have it in your record and minds. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. It is incredible, is it not, that Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, when he was crucified, they broke the legs of the criminals with Jesus, but he went through Passover without his bones broken. Are you seeing it? God is already spelling out all the details in history before they have any understanding of how this is going to be accomplished or what it ultimately means. They only have a rudimentary understanding. We get the full understanding with the revelation of Jesus Christ. It truly is a powerful thing. Now back to Matthew 26. All right, so I just want to end up here because he's about to get into the rest of his, his sermon. Um, I would... We're going to end the sermon review here in an hour because there's actually 30 minutes left of this sermon. And if, uh, if time adds up as it normally does, that means an hour left in the sermon review would make this sermon review two hours. So we're not going to do that. Um, what I do want to stop here and say that the rest of this sermon, he looks at specifically Mary, Martha, Lazarus, um, the whole thing leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. But specifically, uh, he weighs pretty heavy on um, on Mary's obedience to follow Jesus and understand what he's saying, even though the disciples have no clue what he's saying. So it's actually almost, this could have been almost two sermons, to be frank with you, uh, but he puts it all into one. But I want to stop there and go kind of over and review the points that he's talked about so far so we can kind of see um, the good things uh, and the bad things. So the first one is that he sets up this sermon by asking questions from 
the tech or questions that would probably come from the text as far as why is this important we already know what this says there there's not a lot you can bring from this so he, he understands that that's going to be sort of the impression when you read this and then he goes in to support the well to state that scripture is inspired this is here for a reason if it's here for a reason we can learn from it um, and then he goes into uh, kind of uh, what's leading up gives us a really good timeline into what's happening in Matthew 26 as far as the timeline of what affects everything we're going to be reading. Also gives helpful uh, uh, where we kind of see Matthew's writing style throughout the gospel. And this is just one more uh, kind of pattern of that. Then he goes into two big points that we covered in this sermon review that then affect how he talks about the rest of the sermon that he preaches, which is one, he establishes that God is in control. This is not happening by accident. Everything that's occurring is occurring by God's plan. And then he unpacks Passover and what that looks like for those that maybe don't understand what that is or just need a refresher course of what's happening in this moment. He goes in a good portion of that was unpacking Passover and establishing God's sovereignty over the entire situation. That's basically the whole sermon part. That was the first 20 minutes of this uh, last uh, 30 minutes of the sermon. Um, then he uses that to then go into the second half of the sermon, talking about uh, Mary's obedience, what that looks like, how the disciples didn't understand or make the connection of what he just kind of tied up there, which was the Passover in connection to what he's doing, that Jesus is actually living out what Israel was not able to live out. And then he demonstrates that the disciples didn't get that, but Mary did understand that. Uh, and then he applies that at the very end, saying that we should learn from Mary in her obedience, even when other people are pushing against us and saying, no, that's your, what are you doing? What are, you're being very dumb right now. He says that we should just learn the, the, to learn to follow Christ, even when everybody else says that, that what we're doing is, is wrong. So, um, I would encourage you to watch the rest because there's a whole lot more to this sermon than what we've covered right here. But I, I if we go any further, we're going to start getting into that and then we're going to have to stop it abruptly. So I'm just going to stop it right here. Uh, so hopefully that was helpful for you to see. Um, the one thing that I, 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 again, that I pointed out there really briefly that I would, I would maybe push back on Jeff a bit about is if he was making the connection about where Abraham was going to sacrifice his son. Is that this, is he saying that's the same place that Jesus died on the cross? Um, he sort of made that illusion, but he didn't really push in on it very hard. That was the only thing I saw that I was like, eh, what are you saying? So anyway, hopefully this, uh, this, 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 this half of the sermon review was helpful. Um, and uh, honestly, next week we might finish this up on the second half. Uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll see how we how we do it. Uh, if you're interested in perhaps suggesting sermons and pastors to review, uh, if you're part of the Patreon, that's what we do in uh, as part of that. If you're part of the Patreon club or whatever you want to call it, um, we every week I say, hey, guys, is there anybody you'd be interested in seeing a review from? And they throw out some names and then I pick one and we do it. So this is how we kind of got uh, Jeff's sermon here. It was suggested in that Patreon chat. So uh, if you're interested in supporting that, you can check that out in the link to below. Hopefully these, this sermon review was helpful. You learned some things and uh, you can apply that to uh, your life as you go out and listen to sermons either online or in your own particular church. Guys, thank you for watching. Thank you for following. Thank you for sharing and commenting and all the cool things that you do. I'll talk to you next week.